Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hi, everybody. It's Liam Billingham, the co-host of Uber Busters. Before we jump into the show, I just wanted to welcome our special guest host for this episode, the fucking bird that wouldn't shut up and the fucking drill that wouldn't stop while we were recording. Um, they were unwelcome additions to the show, but they bring a real interesting milieu to the Uvra Busters. And um, I'm not sure we'll have them back. We haven't made any decisions about that, but uh, it is not looking good. For that fucking bird and that fucking drill. Please do me a favor, and if you haven't yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud. We would appreciate if you subscribe to it in all of those places. Look at the person sitting next to you on the subway. Look at the person sitting across from you at the dinner table as you don't talk, because this is a John Cassavetes-themed podcast Think about how you're not speaking, and instead you should be listening to Oofra Busters and just embrace the alienation. We can be found at OovraBusters.com. That's where all of the exciting stuff related to the show is going on. Um, find us on uh, Twitter, OovraBusters. Find us on Instagram, OovraBusters. Email us at OovraBusters at gmail.com. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, that's it. Please enjoy the fucking bird and the fucking drill and fucking George Fragopoulos as we talk about faces. Enjoy the show. I'm George Fragopoulos. I'm Liam Billingham. And this is Uber Busters. <laughs> one of these days you're going to be the one that says it and you're going to say amazingly. I believe it's in the Library of Congress. Otherwise, I'm resigning. From your post. <laughs> from my from my post. From my honorary post. Um this is an exciting exciting day. Is it's it? Faces Day. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's Faces Day. Because we're, we're kinda like really back on the Cassavetti. We're through the train. The the studio film gauntlet. We are or not. I mean I know I think last episode we said we would be discussing um the Dirty Dozen, which, which is actually not a year before out a this. A year before, yeah. This. So eventually, we will do an episode on that. Maybe at the tail end of this I as a kind of like celebratory, it's a, a bonus episode. Totally, but it, it's interesting. Um, you think he made faces with that Dirty Dozen money? I have no idea. The Dirty Dozen money because he probably because uh, he was nominated for an Oscar. He was for but, the Dirty yeah, Dozen. He's which, phenomenal in that movie. Which I have, I've not seen that film, and I don't think I saw it in its entirety when I did see it. 
Maybe I saw it like on TV at some I've, point. I've probably only seen it like forty-five or fifty times. Oh, okay, all right. So yeah. it's not very fresh in your mind. I haven't seen it probably. <laughs> well, I say that having not seen it in since the since probably the nineteen nineties. Yeah. My dad and I used to. Is that the film that launched the... you into puberty because of testosterone in that film? Oh, Lee no, Marvin. That would, that would be Honey I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! When the antis. Why'd you fucking have to bring that back back up? When that antis. About three fourths of the way through the film. Spoiler alert! <laughs> I think that was that was Young George's first brush the, um, with death. I was listening to another podcast the other day that actually brought up this same very topic about and, the dead end. Well, they were talking about what a what a dickhead Rick Moranis's character is because there's literally a way to cure hunger by shrinking everybody down and they can just eat giant cookies ah. and uh, he's not sharing that technology. Yeah, but then everybody would be dying. You'd only have to eat cookies when you're that well, small. No, because you. Can- <laughs> Um, anyway, the Republicans are like, we're going to give you free food, but it's going to be sugary and bad. Yeah, well, that's because mm-hmm. of the sugar lobby. Sugar lobby. Uh, so yeah. exciting week. Yeah. Exciting day. Yeah. By the way, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Can I introduce our new sponsor, uh, the Sugar <laughs> Lobby? Um, everybody out there. This episode is sponsored by the Sugar, sugar lobby. lobby. Go out, get your cookies. Just eat sugar. Mm. Like in that Chantal Ackerman film. Which one? Uh, the first one. Where she kind of like isn't it a bag of sugar? She opens up a bag of sugar and just starts fucking like plowing through this bag of sugar. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, G E I U G L. It that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, your yeah. French is so beautiful. It's not. I actually just <laughs> spaced on That's it. That's why it's called a romance. Language. I don't speak. F- <laughs> so um, faces. So the sugar lobby. So the sugar lobby. Um, we're getting their money. We're getting their money. That's nice that they gave us money. Um, sorry, I got distracted for a second there by work texts. Let me put my phone. I'm going to put I my phone. It, I thought you were distracted by your immaculate French. We. Oui. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, uh, let's talk about faces. N- 1968. George, 1968. And as you already said, this is we're kind of back on the Cassavetes train, meaning that now he's once again returned to kind of his... Indie oeuvre. filmmaking roots and yeah, his kind of oeuvre, complete control. He makes these two studio movies. Right. He loses. Uh, he makes Johnny's Staccato. He makes Johnny's Staccato. Which is funny too because I was, once this finished, I was like, I give this four out of five Johnny Staccatos. <laughs> really? Johnny I, gave Staccato it, scale. I gave it 2.5, but we'll ah, get into it. We'll get into it. that, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, from what I understand, um, he went back to making movies this way because he didn't like studio interference in his process and boy does it show in this movie <laughs> it definitely um, does before we jump into the the movie what'd you what'd you think so i enjoyed it uh-huh. um it I, did you well okay so did i enjoy it yes i enjoyed it i think as a relic and as a kind of um as a film that is in many respects rather influential Sure. Um, there were plenty of moments where I kept looking at the time code. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, huh. And I do think, though, stylistically, it does a lot of really interesting things. Did you watch it on Filmstruck? I did, of course. It's the longest two hours and ten minutes of, of <laughs> your life. And I don't mean that uh, not entirely negatively. Can you believe that there's an even longer cut? There's like a three-hour cut. In the Library of Congress, next to, actually, it's filed uh, right next to these podcasts. Interesting, because yeah. these are Cassavetes <laughs> also related. Um, the Cassavetes tapes. <laughs> um, it's a long, it's a long two hours and ten minutes. I tried to watch this. I'd, I'd never seen this one before. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. I, I feel a little guilty because I tried to watch it two or three years ago, and I got about twenty minutes in. I was like, "Fuck this movie." Um, not, and again, it's almost not at all. A, it's not at all a critique of the movie. 
um, there's probably a lot of fan, the three people listening to this podcast, two yeah. of them are probably white fanboys. Yeah. We're like, what the fuck's wrong <laughs> yeah. with this guy? I'm going to send them an email. I'm going to send them an angry email. Uh, I just don't, it's, uh, it was, I turned it off. I was like. Because you were bored. Um, was it the politics of it? Because again, I'm kind of, you know, it's like the, that kind of like toxic masculinity stuff. It's both kind of. Well, it's not entertaining yeah. in a way that husbands is, right. which is like well, a weird thing to say. Well, because I mean, I just again, because husbands, the three of them together are just well, they're amazing magic. Yeah, I also don't. Well, so to come back to it, yeah, I just, I, I, it's a well-made, uh, incredibly. I made a note about this, but I think it's incredibly well shot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I think that the, there's something sad about the fact that it is so raw but it's so meticulously shot and edited the editing is crazy right but we still you know it's still hard for people to take because it's so goddamn raw but yes it's 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 i think it's too long by half i, I think it's too long too i Although think it's a I, solid 90 minute movie i did enjoy the parallel stories i enjoyed sure. the kind of the symmetry of it did you confuse the the white dudes at gina rowland's apartment did I confuse like the there's white. the first guy who he throws out and Freddy. then there's this Freddie and then Freddie Draper, Freddie by Draper the way. shared cinematic has universe has to be has to be a reference for for Don Draper yeah. and it's, it's funny you should say that too because when the film okay so the film begins in a kind of uh, business room yeah it begins in a very oblique oblique business room not oblique but minimalist opaque oh opaque. yeah okay opaque. Like, kind of like in the I sense that you words. don't know, really know what's going I know on words. yeah and there's these three <laughs> women and they're sitting there his secretaries and they offer Richard's cough. secretaries Richard Dickey's secretaries played by John Marley is it who also plays which I didn't realize and I found out by reading the John Cassavetes textbook wikipedia.com a sponsor of this book that film producer who gets the horse head in his bed from the Godfather in Honey I Shrunk the Kids also in Honey I Shrunk the Kids because if you shrink all those horse heads down famine solved like um, I think uh, the the, like the recurring joke for this episode is going to be "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids." <laughs> Marty's just sitting there in the corner and he's sulking. He's like, Marty, I don't, I don't have time for I you. Don't like all these references um, to movies yeah, that so are my own. It's very minimal. It's very. Uh, there's nothing there except these three ladies who are all like, "Can I get you a coffee, Dickie?" They light a cigarettes. Yeah, and then one of them and says he has. He like wants coffee, but then he doesn't. The way he says, I don't want coffee. And then he says, I want coffee is like the most, the perfect summation of John Cassavetti. He's like, I don't want coffee. I hate coffee. Yeah. You better give me a coffee. Also, why would anybody ever say no to coffee? It also, sense. as a coffee drinker, when you see coffee served in those little cups, do you, yeah. do you think, God, that's got to be the weakest cup of coffee? Or the greatest cup of coffee oh, because no, it has no, to be no, served no. in such small doses. So, Welcome to coffee chat. So we're, we're led to believe that he's a, um... Um, films executive? No. Well, but you don't find out till later that he's in finance. Which I is think so that's weird. a lie. I oh, don't think that that's true. I don't think that's true. Okay. Unless he's in film finance. That's the vibe I got. The other also interesting thing, which maybe at least kind of like addresses that. Now the scene has moved to L.A., which you don't find out until much later on in the film. One of the characters says to another character, like, "Oh, what do you think about L.A.?" But you knew they're in they, L.A. They're in L.A. from the beginning, aren't does they? It, is, there, is there an exact reference to that? Because I just maybe well, missed Well, Loser's it, Cafe Bar, I think, is, a, is like it was like a big oh, okay. L.A. But I don't know that for sure. I did not catch that. But yeah, so, so the uh, d- uh, d- Draper comes in. Um, shared Cinematic Universe. Shared Cinematic. Um, and they have some sort of kind of, again, very oblique discussion. I thought it, they, they were talking like ad men. There was an old lady. There was an old lady there. It's very kind of weird. So maybe it isn't a film. Maybe it's like an ad man I thought thing. it was an ad agency, be. too. That makes a lot of sense. But I, it's funny that you should say that you thought he was lying to those Johns later about what he does. 
I guess just kind of like throw people off. But then they also have like that one person in common. Yeah, that old lady too. There's also that old lady. <laughs> it's also the creepy old it's lady. Weird. Um, so, but 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 the, and this, this, this the might be in my mind. This might my my mind might be a little bit of a not a weakness of the movie, but I don't feel as though in later John Cassavetes movies. And granted, I haven't seen everything. There's this sort of like not subtle but subtle critique of like capitalism. Yes, it's it's very like okay, yeah, we get it. Like right. this guy's a finance guy. He's well, he's lives in an alienated world. It's maybe that at the time felt very relevant, right. but now it's kind of like business is bad. Well, which, hey, sure. And so far, what we've seen though, there's always been this kind of insider outsider tension, right? And right, that right. kind of uh, manifests itself in a variety of different ways. And I get it. The whole like let's say cliche of the artist or the person who's kind of like co-opted by the system or sells out, whatever it might be and kind of how that kind of alienates him or her. Are there any artists in this? No, movie? no, there aren't. But unless again, it's if, a big shift from yeah. the others. If we take him to be some sort of kind of, I don't know. Well, if he's a Don Draper type, if, if but he's, he's not Don, the Don Draper he's type. Not. He's the money guy. Yeah. Um, so, and then, and then, well, I do it, like how it begins with the... With the screen, yeah. It's kind of like very meta. It's so, very meta and so it So what happens you. is, yeah, they're sitting there and again, you don't know exactly what it is that they're about to show these Spot people. Vodka's great. Especially this, oh, it, it, it's Grey Goose, right? Water, water vodka. <laughs> water vodka. Um, and then they're all sitting in this room. They're about to unveil some sort of kind of either ad or film. And then a projector turns on... And then, kind of like the camera, it's also a little bit uh, Ingmar Bergman esque. It is, yeah. There's a little Bergman Persona. quality to it, or yeah, and just the kind of like shadow puppet marionette. Maybe we should do devote an entire fucking two years of our so lives to Bergman? to Bergman. I would love to go through the Bergman over. If we, yeah, if we're we, not if, supposed to do that. Can we make it through the Cassavetes? Uber? Can we gotta make it through the Cassavetes Uber? <laughs> so it then, sets up. So it sets up this world of like kind of dominant masculinity. He also the women has a great line servants. here that I wrote down, where one of the again secretaries says something about like, "Oh, how are you feeling?" And says, "I could give you a list of my maladies." Right, like, right, right, right. Like, sounds very, very much like Beckett. So yeah. the film then, like, I guess officially then begins after you're introduced to this world. Right. Is it the birds? Are you paying? No, it's a weird wind squawking. blast. <laughs> Um, and then we cut to Gina Rowland's, uh, no, yeah, Gina Rowland's house. Well, we cut to, yeah, her apartment. And it's, it's a huge apartment. Huge apartment, yeah. The Cassavetti's home, uh, homestead, I believe. I think it was their home. Good for them. And Draper's there. Fred Draper. Fred Draper. Dickie. Dickie and, and Gina Rowland's, I dream Jeannie. of Jeannie yeah. with the light brown hair. <laughs> I'm available for bar mitzvahs. I feel like this is the third episode in a row you've serenaded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm digging it. I'm not complaining. I'm only going to release this yeah. part of the episode. Of course, yeah. Well, that's how we're going to get listeners. Um, you know what I noticed right off the bat? Please tell me. So they, so they come in and they're all drunk. This movie, these movies, this movie has pretty realistic drunkenness. It does. And it's interesting too, and maybe Marty can speak to the, a little bit about this, although he's been silent the last couple of times. We've, he's mad. He's sat down to record. Um, I'm so jacked up on coffee right now. I guess the other interesting thing about this and why I found it also interesting is because there is that kind of... Cassavetti's tension that permeates the entire film whereby any every conversation begins at a good place and eventually goes somewhere completely and it's maniacal and, and insane awful yeah <laughs> and it, everything turns on a fucking dime and it reminded me a lot because there is a moment too where one of the characters like who it is um, says something like oh do you think I'm funny or, or, or maybe the opposite like what you think I'm not funny oh wait no when they're in the bed I think when they're in the bed, we're, we're, we're skipping ahead. Uh, you mean with Seymour Cassell? No, no, no. Actually, when it's Dickie and his wife Maria, oh, who's amazing, bed. yeah, who's amazing, so fucking we'll great. That. But just the overall tension, which also permeates the scene. So they go back 
to Jeannie's place, or we don't see Jeannie, but this is kind of where we're introduced to her. We kind of un- come to the understanding that she's a sex worker because f- Fred is kind of like a dick to her at some point. They're all having like a good time. So they're all drunk, and it's clear that Dickie has fallen in love with this woman. Right but away. But we don't know how they've met. We don't know. That, I guess they, if she's a sex worker, she, they've picked her up. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. I didn't really think of that. I mean, of course. Yeah. yeah, but you don't know that at the beginning of the scene. At the beginning of the scene, the, the three of them are just hanging out. You just assume that they're friends, that they're kind of partying after some sort of successful business venture, which we assume we saw at the right. very, very beginning of the film. Right. and they're drunk. And they're all kind of like playing around. They're dancing. They're singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dickie and Fred are talking about... I don't know, some like stupid routines they used to do. And, and yes. this is about the point when I checked the time for the first point in the film. I wrote down in. this note, checked phone, uh, 11 <laughs> minutes in. And was it, so okay, why though? Because I felt like this is this scene in particular, you know, I thought was really powerful. The um, There were a couple of moments that really drew me in, but yes. No, there were definitely moments, yeah. but maybe it's the week or month or two years <laughs> that we've had, but it's just hard to be like, you want to see my routine from high school? I hate women. Yeah. Um, and I also just, this movie is I a think we went to Georgetown Prep too, didn't they? <laughs> and I think then Fred's like. Yeah, I actually think Fred's a Supreme Court yeah, nominee. Supreme Court or um, Justice. I did write down that these movies are a wash over you. Huh. Like you kind of have to just let them happen because there's no, I mean, we talked about this with shadows. This movie has even less of a character arc totally. kind of feeling than sh- it's just an, ex- an endurance test of personalities yeah. well, coming it, up against you. It's also in the name. I mean, apologies for the saw in the background. <laughs> there's not much we can do about it. That's Marty's We're actually, snoring. He's building, <laughs> he's building a house. He's, and, building, yeah, a he's house. building a little hut. Yeah. Said he's working on a, on sets um, for uh, the sequel to Gangs of New York, and I think that you almost have to approach a Cassavetes movie, especially these early ones, because they're not. This movie like is stripped of any context, very much so, in a way that the later films are not. Husbands has like a milieu. That's right. Ooh, fancy. It has like you know you feel the Long Islandness of the characters and where they are. Um, Ew. Uh, um, same with, you know, the fact that you see Peter Falk at work and women under the influence, which we'll get to. And, um, I mean, what I think is the best one is killing of a Chinese bookie. Like these are all exist in, in what feels like real worlds. I mean, I've never been an ad exec, but mm-hmm. the world of faces doesn't. Well, my ten, I could tell you, you know, my 10 years in the ad exec business, weird, this yeah, is I exactly. Did that. I forgot you did that. It's crazy. Um, Still cashing all those Coca-Cola checks. So, so, so this wait. scene was. Let's come back. This scene oh, no. was very compelling to you. Oh no! I just wanted to also say something about the title because so much of the storytelling in this film is done through the power of the close-up. And, and the yeah. And there are so many great close-ups. great close-ups, especially of Jenna and Rollins. And I think she she's like, the greatest ever. She's great. And there's also, by the way, can we also talk about the age kind of <laughs> divide, which is really, How really creepy. How old is John Marley? He's 60. He's <sighs> 60. I, I, I looked it up on the John Marley. She's 29? No, she's actually, I think, uh, in her early 30s at the time. I think she's like 30, 30. Well, her character, I think, is... 28. She, she says, says she's, she's 28, 28. But again, I don't know if you can trust anyone, anything that anyone says in these movies. No, well, no, the catcher in her line, remember? Because she says like 28 and then she covers her mouth. And oh, she's like, I mean, 23. Right. So her character's supposed to be 28. I think she herself, in reality... 31, 32. Is around... He's is, probably 35. And he's... Who? Cassavetes. Dickie? Oh, Cassavetes, yeah. But Dickie's in his early <laughs> 60s. Dickie's 35. He is... Un- <laughs> he's a young man. <laughs> the, ad, the ad business does age you. Do you think that... The mask. This is a big question that might maybe be better answered. But there's so much pummeling, painful maleness in this mm-hmm. movie. 
And again, this is a conversation we could keep having. Yeah. Why did you find this scene compelling? Why, um, well, just because I think it, it sets up kind of obviously what happens later. And also I sh- we should say, and this is what we were saying earlier about like the symmetry of it. I think what's also compelling about this film too is that the women also get their turn. And we'll also talk about that moment as well because they're like these really interesting inversions where the first kind of half of the film, it's all of these dudes hanging out with all these young women. And then at the end, or not the end, but the second half on, it's Maria and her friends who are hanging out with this guy, Chet. Chet. Played by Seymour Cassell. So great. Best performance in the film, maybe? Maybe, He's incredible. You did not. You are not. You're not with me on that. (laughs) No, no, no. I was was a fan of Chet. Uh, I just can't take anybody... Even a fictional character by the name of Chet is very serious. What about Chet Baker? All right, fine. But he's the only Chet I give a pass to. What about Chet? (laughs) Chet? Chet Guevara? Chet Guevara. (laughs) Well, it's actually Che, but... (laughs) What? Yeah, did you know that? God, I'm learning a lot recording this Chet Guevara, though, some guy out in Nebraska, I'm assuming. Um, (laughs) With really mean parents. Oh, I was going to say Seymour Cassell. Yeah. So Playing in Seinfeldian parlance, a mimbo. An amazing he is mimbo. A mimbo. Yeah, he's a total mimbo. Um, but going back to the early scene, I just found it interesting that it kind of sets up obviously what happens later. I felt like I I thought the again the tension and the creepiness of Freddy, um, I don't know, it just drew me in, man. I mean, like he's, the, he's, he's yeah, an he's asshole. An interesting guy. Yeah, a lot of violence in that guy. Totally, a lot of violence in all these guys. Yeah, it reminded remind me a lot of um, um, God, what's his name? George Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> the actor Freddy's Jason Alexander Jason Alexander's creepy character in uh, Pretty Woman another very interesting parallel so he like quickly turns on Jenna Rollins when he realizes that Dickie is into yeah there's uh, a bit of a love triangle Janie and Junie's into him really good visual storytelling in this scene just the way it, it cuts on them together and yeah. then cuts to his face and then he turns and that's when he's like oh you're just like a prostitute like you're worthless and like Dickie kind of comes through defense and they kind of chase him away right and there's a bit i wrote this down there's a bit of him like there's a bit of a feeling of him being like don't spoil my fragile toxic masculinity like there's this feeling of like i'm a man and that's like a recurring thing throughout the movie okay but this is what's also interesting and again we'll get to this maybe in detail but later on one of the first things that all the wives say to chet i don't know if you've like noticed this right but they're like oh our husbands fear your youth our husbands fear your spirit so there is this moment and i thought like this is not that this is like an incredibly progressive or feminist film by any means but there is a moment at least where this film kind of like gives the women a turn right like puts them yeah and that's what i was gonna ask i I feel like there's a self-awareness i don't know this is all 40 years later or whatever but 50 fuck fuck oh yeah it is 50 years 50 years there's a part of you that like wants to believe that he's very an anniversary episode happy anniversary john gina called jenna jenna called us she said don't call me gina she was like please call me by my name Call me by my name. Call me by my name. <laughs> Call me by my name. Um, and you then kept calling her Liam. And she's like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. And, and you're like, weird. I thought we were doing this thing, you know, because call me by your name. Anyway, <laughs> when the hell are you going to be able to rent that on iTunes, by the way? Hello, iTunes. Is it still not available? Not for rental? No. You have to buy it, which is ridiculous. It's okay, almost, calm, calm down, Costanza. Like calm down. I'm just angry, um, about this. Yeah, the, um, you know, the movie does give, does not give the women short shrift at all. Um it's very it's very sort of evenly paced out. I, I had a lot of trouble with the the women scenes. Um 
the particularly the one with Mimbo Seymour Cassell because they're just it just feels very pathetic and it's not that the scenes with the men don't feel pathetic yeah. but there's that older woman who's just like yeah, no, the drunk scene. girl the one who's drunk like everyone else is politely sipping their wine and yeah. she's like wasted and it kind of also spoiler alert at the very very end I think reverses a lot of those kind of uh, interesting politics by again making Maria this kind of really like over the top hysterical woman who literally tries to commit suicide and I think that kind of also kind of undercuts some of the earlier Yeah, with the moments. sleeping pills. Well, because then it also kind of reminded me of this... Uh, yeah, with the sleeping pills. It also reminded me of uh, Too Late Blues, who Jess, who again, like, has to try to commit suicide, oh, yeah. has to be saved by the guy. And, and she gets saved by a Mimbo who who has unexpected depth in his final half of the film that he didn't have in the earlier scenes. In, uh, in Too Late Blues? No, oh. in, in this In this, yes. Seymour Cassell has that yeah, speech yeah. where he's like, people just can't be vulnerable with one yeah. another. Yeah, which is a great line, actually. Great line. I wrote it down. Um, so then after Fred leaves, Dickie goes back home. Yeah. And... It seems like actually they're living in domestic. They have a, they have a good life. <laughs> they do. They seem yeah. happy. So I thought because I knew the kind of the the uh, the moment that kind of like really makes this film like begin is the moment where he goes back home and tells her that he wants a divorce. Yeah, which does have a conflict. Yeah, but before that, there's like 15 minutes of what seems like uh, domestic bliss might be putting it too strongly. But they're definitely like enjoying their time. They're laughing. Well, there's definitely an edge. There's definitely an edge edge right. to their interactions. Yes, and it's. Um, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of cigarette smoking. A lot of cigarette smoking. Um, opening the beer, the beers that were the old style Budweiser's yeah. where you have to like really break the thing off. Right. It's great. Because um, he comes home and he's like, where are the cigarettes? And she's like, can I ask a I question? smoke them all. Yeah. There's a scene in the movie where he goes to play pool. Yes. And then it cuts to them in bed. Yes. And then it cuts to him in pool. Right. Back to, cuts does to it cut, does back it cut back to Or he looks like he's just leaving the room. No, I thought... It cut that okay. Yes, it cuts back to him coming down from the stairs. So this is weird. You're right. It feels like a the flashback. If it, it, it cuts to him after they're like in bed. No, wait, no, not in bed. Sorry, before bed, he's he goes through we'll play, play pool because she goes upstairs. They've they've sort of yeah. Clearly a sexual metaphor, right? And then it cuts to them in bed, and they're like having a good time. They're rolling around in bed. Um, no one actually has sex. They just roll around in bed and laugh. Which is funny you should say that too because I was thinking, holy shit, if Cassavetes made these films today, um, there would definitely be, I wouldn't want to say like over-the-top graphics. Boning? Sex, but they're, they're, I believe the scientific term is boning, yes. With no G, with the apostrophe. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. As, as the adults say it. Um, because but I wrote you down almost see Chet's ass scene, at the very end. Scene like, number wow. five, was that a flashback? I mean, thought it was a flashback. I didn't take it as a flashback. But then all of a sudden, why is he downstairs back in his shirt? Because I assume that that was just him coming down. Like, he gets dressed. To go back out. They're in bed. They fool around. She comes down to make a drink. He's like, fuck this. I get, I'm get. i getting dressed. I'm asking her for the divorce. He comes down. Mm. He's dressed. And he's like, I'm on my way out. It I really want a reads very... It, it, it really does. Weirds, we reads very funny. No, it does. Um, I wanted to just make a quick note that, you know, we're probably 45 minutes into this four-hour movie. <laughs> and um, it's amazing how chatty it is without it not... Without it losing without it losing any cinematic value. It still feels uh-huh. very visual. And I think part of that comes down to, this is a note I took later, the long speeches in the movie feel really natural. And that's because I think that Cassavetes is like an underrated editor because I think he does the thing that really good filmmakers do, which is he doesn't go like, okay, let's just hold on this shot. Like, I think he combed the footage for reactions that would fit well, yeah. that don't always match, so to speak, or that are a little out of focus or whatever, but they add so much value to the mm-hmm. film because they challenge sort of your, like, 
it's always much more interesting to watch someone reacting to what someone's saying than watching them say it because like there's what they call the dragnet style of editing where it's like I speak and the camera's on me and then you speak and the camera's on you which is how we're filming this actually yeah totally (laughs) but um, it doesn't feel predetermined and I felt that also in the jumping ahead after he tells her to the divorce he goes to look for Jenna Rollins and he goes to the music club and there's this long montage music thing where it's like this is the milieu second time this is the sort of the the universe can we get a bell every time we say milieu ding Um, put that in post production (laughs) and there's just lots of time devoted to looking at people looking around yes which is interesting yeah totally no I I agree I I want to say something about the editing I forgot oh wait maybe that's what I want to say yeah I don't think that that was a flashback because I don't think there's anything that not that a flashback is that like impersonistic but there's nothing I think in this film other than that potential flashback no, that that's suggests true. anything like of that nature and, the, you know, no, it's like, a, and that's the thing that i that's why i question my own reaction to it because there's a real linearity to his movies like he's not these are essentially plays yeah oh they are totally it's very much like being at the theater except again for the power of the close-up which is great i mean like i i think that more movies need to be like that i think that like we're in like a well not now but definitely a big drama thing for a long time was like adding an element of like audience irony like the uh, dramatic irony like the audience knows something that the characters don't and like he has no interest in that he almost in some ways has no interest in an audience i think i think much he like makes us films, podcast. exactly we're inspired by john cassavetes and that we don't care what you think um so then we sort of he so there's a rupture in the story when he says he wants a divorce and this sends them both off on like a kind of like odyssey right, right. and this he goes to the f- eyes wide shot and he goes to f- <laughs> That scene where they're fucking is crazy. He goes to find Jenna Rollins. He checks two places. He has weird interactions with women at a bar. They kind of looking at him like, who's oh, this yeah. old guy? Because yeah. you forget he's 60 fucking years old. Well, that's another thing, too, because the film does uh, address that tension also of kind of um, generational conflict, I think. Right. And again, like later on, those women, um, especially as, as you said, the kind of that older woman who wants to like clearly get down with Chet because who wouldn't want to get down with a 30-year-old uh, Seymour's tight. He's got muscles. Seymour skinny. Casal, yeah. He, lo- he d- doesn't mind dancing. He's a good-looking he guy. dancing. Good shoes. Good boots. Good shoes. Very kind of sensitive. A sensitive soul. Yeah, also. he's not. He's also kind of like a hipster. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, man. <laughs> he totally it's is. funny because I don't know how you feel about Seymour Cassell, but whenever I picture Seymour Cassell, I picture the scene in Rushmore when he says to Jason Schwartzman, do you want some money? And I like start crying on the inside because it's like such an amazing. It just destroys you. And then it's like Seymour Cassell to me is like the dad from a million movies. And like, what a fucking cool dude he was like 50 years ago. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh man, if only you were my dad. Um, Um, So yeah, he goes looking for Jeannie. He calls her and he's like, hey, let's meet at this bar. And she doesn't She doesn't go. Because Jimmy McCarthy's in her house. Because Jimmy McCarthy's... Brett Kavanaugh-esque uh, friend. Uh, Joe. No, let's just call him Brett. Yeah, it's we, Brett Kavanaugh. We call him Brett. <laughs> yeah, call him Brett. So, so Jimmy McCarthy. Check out the brain on Brett. Check out the brain on Brett. And this scene didn't... So 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 we now cut to Jeannie. Mm-hmm. She's with these guys and this girl who's her roommate? Who seems to be either her roommate or her colleague. Right. And yes, they're entertaining Joe and Jim, who again, these like business... Type type and bros. Um, I didn't think this scene made any sense for a uh, while. I was like, "What the?" Because f-? it's so similar to the scene that comes before it. Like, I don't think. Well, it's really long. Jimmy too. McCarthy is all that different from mm. Fred Draper. Apologies on the wind, folks. We <laughs> opened a window and uh, 
It's a ghost. Ooh, it's our hot ghost of John Cassavetes. Um, he has no liver. So wait, so you just didn't? <laughs> you said you, he just he just, just he just this was a scene that just really sat liver, there, really sat there. Um, the scene really sat there for me until until Jimmy Dickie. McCarthy brings her into the bedroom, oh, the bedroom and has the scene where he talks about his son, yeah. and how he's emasculated by his son, right? And how his son wears tennis shoes because his son plays tennis. His son he said, plays tennis at said, Dartmouth. Yeah, he said, oh, "Fucking he, Ivy League yeah. loser." <laughs> he's like, "I wanted." He's like, "I wanted my son to play football, but, but his, his mom tennis. said no, so now he plays tennis." And then he runs, and then after he concludes the story, that's quite not sad, but you feel for him for a moment. He, he runs. Does, yeah, like what well, is the thing? Well, this is a, closing the. Sorry, window. go ahead. Closing the window i'm gonna help hang on this is teamwork you guys are really welcome to window insight into our process um he then runs into the bathroom messes up his hair untucks his shirt and runs out and is like says to brett Kavanaugh and this girl like oh genie she's a good one yeah like he's had sex with her and it's devastating yeah it's so painful this guy's a pathetic piece of shit his his his, his boy brett is also like um just you know typical can I write down a note? Can I tell you a note I wrote down? Please. And this was in reference specifically to Brett and Jimmy McCarthy. <laughs> um, the guy you think is the worst in a John Cassavetes movie ends up not being, <laughs> not the, being worst the worst because you think Brett's the worst. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But then it's very clear that Jimmy McCarthy's the worst. Brett's just like an ox. About Brett, but then you find out that Jimmy's really the creepiest. And um, it, the creepiness factor gets ratcheted up once Dickie shows up. And, and there's this weird bro like, confrontation yeah. that Dickie has no interest in, but he engages in. He engages in, and they kind of do the, and there's this awkward fight. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of an awkward wrestling match. Um, I wrote down... Over again, like, Genie's affections. Yeah, and I wrote down, like... And this is, like, something I thought about from acting school. Oh, of course. Why does anybody stay in any room in this movie? Like, what's the compelling reason to stay in a room? I think that's, like, a big difference with a John Cassavetes You know, movie. It's, it's so funny you should say that, too, because at some point I wrote down a note here about this being, like, John Cassavetes' version of Sartre's No Exit. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> also because of, like, the intensity of the interiors. Nobody the, wants to leave. Nobody wants to leave. All There's all this, like, claustrophobia. That final scene, or one of the final scenes, where Chet runs out of the house i think it's like i was like that's one of the only exterior shots in this entire film and it's a it's, it's, it's interesting it's a very liberating shot too because he literally runs out into the sunset like or into the into the sunlight that um, shot is fucking incredible i watched shot. it three times because yeah. it doesn't cut and he jumps off a roof and run down to, uh, runs he, runs he, down a hill that's a good point i did not it does not cut i watched st- it two I or three see times Marcus own stunts. um yeah. So, yeah, but do, do, do you know that he also did some of the stunts for uh, Vin Diesel in the first? Triple he actually X? did yeah. all of Sean Connery's stunts in <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, Sean Connery. Yeah. Why does anybody stay in this room? Is Sean, and, wait, sorry, is Sean Connery in the director's cut of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? No, he's he's the kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, why does anybody stay in the room? This scene is because really how is other people? What's Liam? really interesting? Okay, we what's haven't really, we haven't left this room. <laughs> we've just been recording it for the last week. I wrote this down while we were watching it. People seem to get past how they feel about each other. Like there seems uh. to be this sort of like, and all of a sudden it's cool. But I actually think what ends up happening is Jimmy and. So that this scene is full of lies. Everyone's lying to each other. No one's telling the truth about who they are and what they are. Well, I didn't read in that cynical way, but, but sure. At the end of it, they're like, I actually do think like the let's meet for lunch is genuine because I think yes. whether it's genuine or not, it's almost surreal. And I think there's this Cassavetti's thing of like, again, men are always all about men. Right. Like there's a, it, it's a bromance. It's very like homosocial. Thing. Yeah. Homosocial. Yeah. Interesting. To use a fancy word. Um, to come back to the interiors thing, the smarter people than us. 
should maybe watch like a Chantal Ackerman film like Jean Dillman against a film like Faces because they're yes. both such interior driven yeah. movies and they're about interior spaces and, yeah. and to some extent interior spaces of the mind. Quickly, can I derail this podcast? Oh, uh, Jean Dillman, plot or no plot? I was trying to convince my students that there's no plot to this film and they kept telling me, no, there's a no, plot. No, there's a plot. There's no story. Ah, uh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But in Aristotelian sense? <laughs> No, because there's this unity the sound of time, of a man space, intellectually and action. There's, there's time, space, and action. So I suppose, yeah. But there's no why there's in no John Dillman, which is what a story is, right? Isn't it? Isn't the old the old adage? Let's ask, let's ask the English professor. Yeah. Can we get Professor Fragopoulos? <laughs> Hold on, on while I put on my uh, tweed jacket. Isn't with the, the, the um, I have one if you want to borrow? It. Isn't the uh, thing about plot is that the king died and then the queen died, and story is the king died and then the queen the queen died because of grief. Ah. That's not from Aristotle, though, is it? Uh, it's a Brecht thing, I think. Oh. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> but there's no plot in this movie. There's this no movie's plot in this all movie. story. Yeah. So they, again, so they have this fight. Is it? They kind of then, like, reconcile in a weird way. They have a laugh about, like, knowing somebody. Um, is this also when when uh, Dickie complains to Jenna Rollins about all the uh, the leftists? Where he's like, yeah, eat, it's eat, weirdly eat, political. Like, eating meat is a problem. But then he also says something about, like, I wrote it down here. A left winger or union organizer comes around and tells us that we all are born good. And obviously Dickie does not believe that as a man of finance. This is also where he says to right before they leave, he says to Jim that he is in finance. Do you think Cassavetes is a political filmmaker? Uh, I mean, I would think he would say that he's not, but clearly obviously he is in the sense that all (laughs) aesthetic works are to some degree political. Yeah, of course. Uh, come let's let's get into Christopher Nolan. No, but I think that's true. <laughs> that's um, fascist. But I think, goddamn. Um, but I think. Um, but I think that he's political. I'd hate to say this, and there's people that'll contradict me because I'm probably wrong. But he's political in a way that I think people who say they're spiritual but not religious are political. Like it doesn't feel deep to me. In like a. Like he doesn't seem committed to a cause or a side or an idea. He seems to he seems to explore politics in relation to character, which is fine. But in the case of this, it feels very empty because like it's not that I necessarily Dickie's the protagonist of the movie. If there's a protagonist, and it's not that I want to think good things about him because there's clearly not great things about this guy. But the political elements of it feel so right. tossed into the film. And that like those moments me. where he's like complains about left wingers and union. Yeah, leaders. it's kind of like yeah, okay. Well, see, I mean, I, it's funny you should say that because I think what Cassavetes would say is like, no, I'm not a political filmmaker. I'm, poli- I'm a filmmaker, let's say, of the individual. But I would say that that's a politics. So like his obsession, let's say, with the individual and let's say these outsiders, um, is obviously kind of like a political stance. And right. I think if you are going to say something about him being somewhat progressive, at least kind of in his overall politics, is the sense that these institutions like marriage, like the business world, are fucking can be so fucking degraded. And dehumanizing. <laughs> and, dehumanizing. and that's a big part of his of what his films are about is dehumanization, probably. Yeah. Probably. And those <laughs> his films are probably about <laughs> That's a great thesis um, I've ever There read was about. also a, a line, I want to start over again. He's like has this long speech oh. and he says, And I have bad kidneys and then they yeah. both start laughing and it's like no one says anything seriously in a John <laughs> right. Cassavetti's yeah. movie. Like you, you, can't, about you spend a bunch mortality. of times identifying, 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 and then he pulls it out from under you and you're like, Oh fuck. But I just read those as scenes of complete and utter despair. Yeah. <laughs> These they're people sad. are just like everything is pointless. I also wrote down this just isn't doing it for me. Um, but I'm I'd like to come back to my overall point, which is I think that this movie 
and all of his movies, they're not there to satisfy you. That's very obvious. But I also think in the details and in the particulars of watching them, he just doesn't give a fuck about how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, except that you feel. And I think that that's pretty ad, still pretty, pretty exciting about yeah. his film. Like, yes, I think you would say I'm not political and I don't care like what you think of my work. This is the work I make. And that's still exciting. So the scene ends with uh, Jenny's or Jeannie's friend um, taking out uh, Jim and Brett. They leave the apartment. Um, and some of the dialogue they've already talked Peter about kind of happens Piper, after. Piper picked a pair of pickled Well, that's peppers. later. Yeah. yeah. That's after they have sex um, yeah. in the morning. But so they leave. No, but they say it the night before, don't they? Do they say it the night before? Maybe they do. I, I mean, I think the Peter yeah. Piper picked to pick a pair of pickled peppers is a yeah. key line to understanding where their relationship ends. I'm serious. Ah. Because there's a big next morning. There is a big next morning scene. But then it cuts. So then they have like, the, so then they leave. And uh, then that's some... Brett. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bonin. Uh, goes down, which which again you don't see because nineteen sixty eight, right? Um, and then also, uh, uh, this is where Jeannie has the line where she says, uh, "You're a son of a bitch," and he's like, "Why am I son of a bitch?" And she says, "Like you're a son of a bitch uh, because you get to me," which is I guess the kind oh. of the closest that she gets to kind of revealing. And this is after saying, she's called Jim McCarthy a son of a bitch. Yeah, and they so they leave, they spend the night together, and then it cuts to Maria, who is with with her gal pals. Um, is going out to this. Who uh, are these gal pals? We don't really know. We just yeah, they just kind of show. Up. Hold on one Maybe one of them was Louise. Louise was the woman that he was. Uh, he was that uh, Maria was talking to on the phone when Dickie first comes home. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it's Maria who now obviously has been told that her husband wants a divorce and she is also looking for some young flesh and she finds it in the figure of Chet. There's a long dance scene and where they watch really him dance, dance and I, I think I was nodding off during it. <laughs> um, I love the music that was playing but here. But This is a nice moment because there's actually some joy in these movies and it's the joy of watching joy, like yeah. people who are not stuck in their interiors right. Every scene that takes place outside of their homes mm-hmm. are happy. That's a good or, point. Or, 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 at the or very let's say, p- contrast with the yeah, interior there's world. There's a potential for happiness. Which is interesting because that's going to be something that's going to come up in husbands in some ways, I think. like It's almost like his characters need a reprieve from their lives yeah. by going to social spaces, which is like the reality of alcohol and socialization and stuff like that yeah. in general. Socialization, not like the act of being socialized, but more like being social and, and right. going into the... In case you guys were confused by my big word. I was not. No, some people. Um, and then it cuts to... So they, they go, they kind of pick up Chet. It's Maria and her three friends. And, and they're it, back in the house. Back in her house. Can I make a because note? Because I was a little confused here. Something that I thought was interesting. Is it about all um, the... I wrote here, excellent white people dancing in the, in the club? Is yes, that what you want the to dancing was good. <laughs> no, um, I think there's... Re- this is a, the strength of him as a director in this moment because you manage to understand a lot about their relationships through the way they relate to Chet in front of each other. Cool. Which I think. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say something cool. More than that. Um, no, it, I like, think. Like, is there like, a particular moment that you're? It's just that, like, how desperate the older woman seems to be, and how the the other woman puts on this air of being affected, right. and like, clearly. Oh, she's like the one that's well, like, I went to college. Yeah, Lynn Carlin's like, you fucking like, you yeah. almost feel like she's disgusted by your yeah. friends because they all kind of leave. They do. They the all kind of drop leave. off. I yeah. The one wants sh- the one kind of like stays behind for a little longer, and she has like this moment with Chet, and she's like obviously desperately wants to like spend the night with him but he's kind of like i'm not like doing this and then he offers to kind of take her home um but then he comes back and he comes back from maria yeah 
because he's clearly into her. And this is also, again, like we were talking about, like the inversion, too, of like the first half of the plot. Because, again, first half of the plot or of this, of this movie, it's guys like Dickie and Brett. And I just love that we're still fucking calling him Brett. Brett. And Jim. Yeah, suddenly we're getting the, the sort of the the, the, the fem, female side, yeah. if that's an appropriate and thing they to were, say. And they were hanging out, obviously, with these much younger women, and now it's like these older women hanging out with this one much younger man. But Lynn Carlin doesn't... She's actually very young. She's got to be her, like she's early She's in her 30s. 30s. I looked that up, too. <laughs> she's no, a very age-inappropriate wife. Well, she's so an age-inappropriate. But don't you think she's supposed to be playing somebody that's at least a decade older? Like, she, like clearly, yeah, Seymour Casale is supposed to be like in his I mean, early 20s. She's perfect in the movie. She is. But no, she's, she's amazing. But she's... She doesn't read as older. She yeah. on a very superficial level. Yeah, um, but she she's clearly still older, if not by a lot older than. So she Chet. sleeps with Chet, yeah, and then it cuts to the morning. And I think that this is, you know, I think this is interesting. I think a lot of great movies do this thing of you see the drunken revelry of the night and then the hangover the next day. Yeah. Like it's an interesting structural adv- because the next morning we then cut back to Dicky and Jenna Rounds. Am I going too fast? No, no, no. And they're sort of like in the light of day and she makes him eggs and the eggs are terrible. And well, he also has this great line. He's like, I've been seduced. I've been seduced. Yeah. God, it's such a good. There's a little bit of like Beckett, like you said. There There's is, a little bit yeah. of like this like sort of like no one. I don't know if what people say in these movies is what they feel or what they think. I don't know what's well, going on. It's also really interesting, too, because then I also thought I was thinking about like the transactional nature of that uh of them having sex and I was like I was like huh because I thought there, might, there was going to be a scene where like he tries to offer her money and that's where like he insults her or something um, but he insults her because of the eggs I don't think John Cassavetes would ever show that scene where he offers her money and he it's like I just feel like it's not why because I think he would find another way to do it which is what he's which done the which eggs. is the eggs yeah. exactly so, so I'm agreeing with you I'm agreeing I'm agreeing with you. Don't don't look so sorry, angry sorry. guys. The rage in, in George's eyes God right now is damn. unbelievable. If we were um, in such a There was studio, a line I'd here and I did I did a really bad job of writing it. But I thought it was sort of key to, to I I think I, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what what he's trying to say in these films, which might be a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But there's this thing about like she's talking about they're talking about like real things and she's like oh it's like all of it's blah 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 huh i don't, I don't remember and that it's part. like i don't deflect defensive song say something I, I wish i'd done a better job right down. but there's this sort of feeling that like they start to have a serious conversation and, and neither one of them wants to have a serious yeah. conversation and then it goes back to the peter piper picked a pair of pickle oh, right yeah and then she walks off and then he comes in and he's like hey genie Peter Piper picked a pair of pickled peppers and he says it and you feel that they go back into this yeah. fantasy world where the, the consequences and implications of their choices don't matter. It's yeah. still the night of yeah. sex and revelry and drunkenness and and you don't know if it's a weekday or a week whatever. <laughs> like, does he have to <laughs> he, go to work? He doesn't have to go to work, clearly. Yeah, I don't, or maybe he does. I Those mean, financiers, they don't really work. They just steal from the rest of us. This band is brought to you by Marks. <laughs> Welcome to Revolutionary Podcast. <gasps> um, speaking of, but I also find that like P- Peter Piper, I can I can say it, Piker? Piker? Peter Piper picked a pair of pickled peppers. <laughs> I also found that as a very kind of um, again these moments of false kind of childhood or childish kind of enthusiasm and joy, where they're again kind of like just enjoying each other's pleasure or uh, company. Well, and it's, it, and it's, this, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. nonsense. Because it also kind of replicates the nonsense, the the joke making between him and Maria earlier in the film when they're in bed and they're cracking jokes about Freddy's 
infidelities and right. about kind of his shitty kids or whatever it is that they're they're making jokes about. Oh, yeah, they go after Freddie Hard. They go after Freddie Hard, yeah. Um, so I just found it, it was kind of almost like endearing, but yeah, it's this kind of as you said, it's clearly covering up some kind of greater yeah. trauma or uh, this or refusal denial. to to accept or to confront well, the reality. And that situation. might in and of itself be the political commentary that this is not a guy that wants to go back to the reality of his existence and how his life is defined by work and booze. And so to jump ahead a little bit again, me go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Oh, but so so did we mention the eggs? So she makes eggs for him and he just complains about the eggs being shitty. How can you make shitty eggs? Yeah. Which is, I think exactly what he says. I think you can overcook eggs. (laughs) She then welcome to egg cast. She then throws them. Uh, at the end of this, uh, wait for our amazing omelet recipe. She then... You want them to make sure to take the, the pan off the heat and put it back on repeatedly. Um, but don't salt the eggs when you're cooking them. It breaks up the, it, the, the what fat. What kind of barbarian would salt eggs while they're cooking? That makes no sense. But, uh, yeah, she makes it. And that sort of sets off this... And like, you know, so she goes into the kitchen. Sorry, she goes into the kitchen. She throws away the eggs. And it's a great scene because, again, there's like somewhat of a close up and she's crying. Oh my god! And the camera pushes in. Yeah. Like, a lot of zoom lenses lot, in this movie, which you know is by like zoomy, a traditional zoomy zoom. Were you watching the same? Zoomy zoom, zoom, <laughs> zoomy zoomy. A lot of um, like, sort of like a cinematic faux pas, but he really utilizes them quite well. Yeah, so they have this fight, but then they sort of return to the naivete with the Peter Piper picked a pair yeah. of pickled peppers, and then we cut to a shot of Maria, Maria on the floor, on the floor having attempted suicide. Correct. And Seymour Cassell in this like incredibly cut, incredibly yes. edited scene of yes. physicality yeah. where he like tries to wake her up by putting her in the shower. He makes her some kind of drink that <laughs> causes her to throw up and then finally sticks his fucking yes. finger in his mouth. And well, he also smacks her a couple of times because it's John Cassavetti's film. He also called, <laughs> he also calls 911 and asks for the emergency <laughs> rescue squads, <laughs> which I didn't know the specific the branch. ERS yeah, yeah can I get the emergency <laughs> rescue squad but it's great um, it's like okay what's your number and then he just hangs up on them right well I think he's like, holy shit she's in trouble yeah. yeah there's a quote from John Cassavetes that uh where he says silence is death Ooh, but y- well yeah and I it's kind of annoys me as a quote because it's like what are you talking about but he spares us the sound of her gagging until the very, very end when I'm she gl- throws up I'm glad you so mentioned that like, too because I, I was like it was that I'm like, doing an impression can you describe? <laughs> so he's got Liam's sort of kind of gagging, but not quite. Yeah, he's oh, oh, there. Goes. Included the sound, but you don't hear it. I thought that was a, uh, a, like an, an editing thing. I think it like might it, have been it, like a, in, yeah. in the sense of like uh, the censors. I was like, oh no, we can't have her gagging too much. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't or know. Also, just maybe bad audio. Yeah, well, I don't. I, I mean, they didn't have a lot of money for this thing. Yeah, but there's there, there's an absence of sound design in this, but I think it's intentional. Like he would uh-huh. he would use the raw mono tracks in like Prince of Films because he didn't want it to be overly designed. Produced, yeah. Yeah, 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 so punk. So punk. So, so fucking punk. So then she pukes, and it it is a, an amazingly shot. Uh, yeah, it's really well done. It's like one um, and, single shot of a couple of us, and then she kind of, of wakes up. She wakes up, and, and he's kind of like thrilled. But he, and then he has this speech about how people can't be vulnerable yeah. with one another. And was that then, or was that no? It's they, right then. It's right then, or soon after. Uh-huh. Um, and it's an interesting moment in the film because it's if there's a overarching theme to the movie. I don't know what it is. It seems to be a movie that's about domesticity. And I actually ultimately... You know how terrible it is? And, and routine. 
Somebody talks about them. Somebody say something about the banality of doing the same thing day in day out. That was you. You oh, said that, that earlier. Maybe that, maybe, maybe that was me. <laughs> yeah, there's probably something of that in there. But you know, also kind of the way that people, especially, I feel like this was probably a really strong feeling in 1968. Just the yeah. feeling of like, uh, I mean, politically, the world is in chaos. Totally. Um, and granted, he started moving, shooting the movie years before, but. Um, I wrote down Seymour Cassell teaches the lesson in this movie. Like there's this feeling that he has a commentary about vulnerability and he's, he's probably the most open character yeah. in the film. He's certainly the, the most, con- most concerned with other people's well being that we see in the course of the movie. Yes. I'm just trying to think of any, well, I mean, I think Jeannie also like she opens herself up and they're like doing interesting parallels. They're like Jeannie, her, you mean Jenner Allen? Yeah. Yeah. And God, she's so Chad. Good. Can we just do a podcast about how good Jenna Rollins is? <laughs> we could. Jenna Cast. Jenna Cast. Um, we got to come up with a new joke. Um, <laughs> talking no, talking Rollins. Talk, talking talk about my Rollins. Jenna Rollins. <laughs> be amazing, too, because, like, uh, like <laughs> I know Pete uh, Townsend. I could get him to. The, 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 I just, how, how quickly would that cease and desist letter come? <laughs> so quick. It already is. It's in the mail. It's I just got mail. it. It's like, wait, we haven't even We're posted fucked. any of these. Um, but he has a speech about, you know, I, I wish I'd written it down in detail, but it's like, you know, vul- people can't be vulnerable with yeah. one another. Well, I mean, I tattooed it on my back last night, so if you want to... All right, Leonard Shelby. My, my Is that the second Memento commentary? That no, we well, you said something about uh, the fascist Christopher Nolan earlier, even though Memento, amazing, amazing fucking film. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I don't know if it's his best. It's good. Uh, I wouldn't say it's his best, but it's great. Um, we all know it's first the Dark Knight Rises. Bull. No, it's the second film. His first film is a film called Following, which I oh. highly recommend you watch. Uh-huh. Um, so then, so after Seymour Cassell revives and has this speech about vulnerability, which I think is key to understanding the movie, Dickie comes home, Cassell jumps out a window, and what I think <laughs> is an absolutely astonishing yeah. shot that I don't think they had a stunt coordinator for, and yeah. I was like terrified about because he runs down like a 40 foot hill and yeah. runs down the street shirtless and this is the final few minutes of this movie are amazing amazing yes that and shot amazing of them on the stairs because i think they're a little bit of a talk about a beckett moment because my feeling in the final so they they sit on the stairs she lights a cigarette he, he lights a cigarette he hands her the lighter she walks he walks upstairs mm-hmm. takes off his jacket she walks upstairs puts on a nightgown and then they both walk in separate directions yeah. and the movie ends this to me implies that this has happened before and it's going to happen again. Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like that what the final reveal of this movie is like, oh, this is something they've just done before. But why? I don't know. Maybe, again, it could be my like need to find some kind of overarching idea or something, but it d- just doesn't feel... It, it feels so pedestrian. And the final moments of the it. movie feel pedestrian in the sense that it's like, well, what are well, we going to do now? Not with a bang, Liam, but with a whimper. Am I right? Right. Amen. No, but it really, do. I think that's true. It's kind of like, what do you do after you've both cheated on your spouse and are, you know, left your hell as other people? Yeah. He's surprisingly kind of, I mean, not that it, there isn't some anger in the scene when he returns back home and he realizes that um, she hooked up with chat, but he's also surprisingly chill. Yeah. I thought there was going to be a, like a, a really, really awful moment of violence. And there is some violence because he, he, but it's, he like throws her. But like, it's almost, yeah, he throws her and he's like, would you want me to hit you every time you open your mouth? Or something like, yeah. But it's almost him being like, I'm not this way, which I think he isn't that well, way. They're he's, both resigned. That I, I read it as they're both resigned to the shittiness of their situation. And then in fact, it will, I mean, the walking away, I think is what to me suggests that they're not going to reconcile. That there's in fact a, an a actual, break. yeah. Like if that hmm. scene maybe ended with both of them walking upstairs, 
I think that would be totally different. Mm, interesting. I see it as maybe we're going to repeat a pattern later in life. Um, to wrap it up. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, where do you see this? So we've so far we've watched Shadows, Johnny's Staccato, Staccato. Uh, A Child is Waiting, and Too Late Blues. Where do you where uh, what are you starting to sort of see emerging as like a consistent? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, the the constant kind of themes of uh, family, um, op- the oppression of kind of social institutions, whether they're the business world, mm-hmm. um, whether they're uh, domesticity, mm-hmm. marriage. And kind of love and love. marriage, um, domesticity, marriage, um, alcohol, lots of alcohol, <laughs> but lots, almost, lots of smoking, right? Almost also, escapes from escapes totally from institutionalization. Uh, that's exactly or, what I was going to say. Yeah, there's attempts to kind of like get out to like break free for a moment, and that's what's also so powerful about husbands. That it's like entire next step. it's entire bender. Like the film is just about them going on a bender, trying to get away from their. From a what they see as like their shitty lots of life, right? No, absolutely. Um, it's an interesting time to, to be watching these movies uh, in light of what's going yeah. on culturally, and just it very much is. And it also makes them in a, in, a, in a very certain way really uncomfortable. Yeah, there's a terrible scene in Husbands. We'll talk about it obviously when we get to Ooh, it, but which is next. Well, there's Husband's two tar- terrible scenes. Cause I, <laughs> I know what terrible scene you're thinking about, but I think we're a different terrible scene. Are you thinking about the terrible scene at the, towards the beginning, maybe first 40 minutes versus the one in the hotel room in London towards the end. Oh no, I was thinking about, no, I was thinking about more about the one in yeah the hotel room that the never ending. Scene yeah. In the hotel room. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I think that in addition to being like, like talking about thematically, like domesticity or routine, I think that that's an, the escape from and all these things and kind of the ways that oh, shit. we've John been Carpenter's conditioned. Escape from domesticity. Oh, I love that film. Let's snake, it's snake a, written by Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> um, but I think one thing that Cassavetes and th- to relate to my comment of these things washing over you, I think one thing that he does differently than many many other filmmakers is they point to their themes, yeah. or is he like immerses you in the reality of it, like. He's not a he's not a, a th- guy who's like understand the themes intellectually. Though I think there's an intellect to what he's doing, but it's more just like this is what it is. Like it is that existential Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre. S- S- Sartre. Sartre. That yeah. works. Great. Uh, thing of like you say Sartre, I say Sartre. <laughs> you say Sartre. Um, there's a certain um, quality. There is no totally. You're living these situations. You're not and escaped. To, you're not removed from them. And I had to go back and see when. Sartre wrote uh, No Exit. 47? 44. I think 44 in French. I don't know when it was translated to English. But these films, and I think that kind of like Especially this one. Yeah, I think that kind of era of, let's say, uh, New York intelligentsia that's been very much influenced by French existentialism, that seems like by the, the late 60s, I would assume it's kind of like already exhausted. Gone. Yeah, but there is Who so are you much talking I about. I don't know. I'm thinking about people like Mary McCarthy and like Lionel Trilling. Mm. Um, those like partisan review people, which I think, I mean, again, I don't know the exact dates for this, but I think the, the heyday of those kind of uh, journals or that journal in particular was like 40s and 50s, and that kind of New York intelligentsia. So and, cinema kind of filled that void. Yeah, or maybe just kind of. Uh, and obviously, we're just talking about one filmmaker at the time. A filmmaker that at the time no one cared about. And it's interesting to come back to... This film was nominated for three Academy Awards. Three. Count them. Um, best Supporting Actress. Which is kind of amazing. Best, Yeah, Best Screenplay. And 
Best Chad? Best Seymour. Yeah, Best, best Chad. Chad. No, no, Best Supporting Actor, <laughs> yeah. Seymour Cassell. I don't, I don't, I think he would be nominated for one Oscar, maybe. Maybe Jana Rollins would be nominated for A Woman Under the Influence, but. Cassavetes was nominated for Dirty Dozen the year before. Yeah, but like, so. so this is, this film almost, it's interesting, you know, it says something to his, I don't want to sit around and just like fillet John Cassavetes, <laughs> but. Um, what you do you oh, want to? <laughs> but like, it's interesting. It's a very it's just, uh, interesting turn of it's phrase. It's just interesting that this is what happens next for him. He does Dirty Dozen, gets nominated for an Oscar, and then does this, and then and then finishes. Oh, this you mean movie. in a certain sense of like, fuck yeah, I mean, you, I'm gonna do my yeah, own I thing. Yeah, I mean, I think he would have been working on this before that, so it doesn't really matter. But um, well, I, yeah, when they started filming, I think uh, John Marley was only like forty. <laughs> So John Marley to, actually played Seymour Cassell. They <laughs> shot that stuff first. <laughs> they had to recut everything. Yeah, they were like, oof. Um, but I think that definitely you can see the influence in this thing in like any film about like modern day alienation. Yeah, I didn't enjoy this as much as Shadows. Um, I don't think you're sort of meant to. And also like the uh, the 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 the. the, the, uh, the the time also the it was like because shadows so, so wrong so so much brisker this feels very dated it actually feels more dated than shadows in certain ways it does yeah do you think that might have to do with the fact that there's a uh, this movie's all white people there's yes. like so much more yeah. diversity in shadows yes. and that it doesn't feel as caught up in the totally. like white the work, white, white like upper class angst. milieu angsty thing where yeah. shadows feels like it's grappling with stuff that feels more genuine and more yeah, contemporary. I've kind of had it. Um, I've kind of had it. Had it with like rich white people exhaustion. Next up on the Uber <laughs> um, Busters, <Yeah>. husbands. <laughs> uh, well, but those characters strike me as being more like middle class, and yeah. like this guy's like some rich fucking financier. They're talking about like the. We didn't even mention this, but like Jim at some point says something like, "Oh, I import or I sell aluminum and brass or some shit like that." Yeah, like these are the type of rich, and he mentions that, oh, that so guy's a traveling makes, salesman because he says something too. like, "I make two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year back in nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, yeah, I make that's what I make. Yeah, now. Oh, I mean, who, well, who doesn't, right? Yeah, all, all podcasters, <laughs> all podcasters make it. All so, right. yeah, so part of me is kind of like uh, fuck these people. Whereas again, like the people in shadows are like down on their luck bohemians who have obviously huge other fucking like structural issues that they have to deal yes, with, like really racism. So yeah, there's a certain way in which that doesn't um, feel dated, like the politics of that are in a way way more present than the politics of this because again to some degree like I'm not really interested in like the rich white people that's why for example like the most sympathetic characters are Chet and Gina or Jenny Gina Jenna Jenny well, Jenna Genie. Genie. I dream of Jeannie with the light and they're clearly the ones that are the younger ones they're the, they're the millennials they kind of are <laughs> even though people yeah. in 1968 who are in our, who are uh, approximately our age younger than us grow up to feel vote for like Trump. they're in their <laughs> they're 45 oh yeah and then like eventually everyone, grow, up, grow up to vote for isn't Trump. it weird to like watch him I still I'm 35 I still watch movies and I'm like those people are so old You're and oftentimes young? they're younger oh, than me yeah. how old are you 37 no, th- uh, 37 soon to be 38 what what oh yeah saturday yeah. why are we talking about this i don't know um should happy we wrap it up here? yeah I thought happy we birthday that. george yeah let's, thank you well i mean like end it oh sorry should officially, we end yeah. it yeah. so next week or uh, two weeks two husbands weeks. husbands let's do this i'm gonna say a husbands with then a slice of the dick cavett Oh, I think we should talk about both. Totally. Let's Whether do we do husbands and then like a bonus twenty minutes on. Uh, Maybe we should do that. On uh, isn't this really Dick exciting Cavett? for you guys? While you listen to us plan, I think it's good. It gets it gets you behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. <sighs> All right. Wait. Um, uh, do we want to give uh, Marty? Marty? Any? Marty? Marty? Anything? Marty. 
Any final words, Marty? Uh, he's just, he's just. He's upset. Oh, I think, I think, I think he mouthed, silence is dead. <laughs> so, which is a great way to end. Uh, next time, husbands, uh, you're George Fragopoulos. And you're Liam Billingham. And this is Uber Busters. You said it again. <laughs> Happy birthday, birthday. Oh, we're saying to you. John Cassavetes. Happy birthday, birthday to you. John Cassavetes. Happy birthday, dear John. Happy birthday to you. And many more. Well, I, actually, no, dead. dead. I am. That's so sad. We have to talk off mic about your singing because I really, I really, that really threw me off. I was fucking killing it. Happy birthday, John Cassavetes. We miss you every day. Also, that took a really dark turn. I forgot that he was dead. Really? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs>